0: you in grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of servants of grace, Dave Jenkins for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have my buddy, Kossi. And Kossi, welcome back to the show, buddy.
2: Great to be back with you, Dave. Appreciate it. You too, buddy.
1: Can you uh, tell us about what's going on with you and your life, marriage, ministry, and what are you working on ministry project-wise these days?
2: Yeah, so I recently just made a pastoral transition, my first time uh, in the Bible church world. I had transitioned before out of the prosperity gospel and all that, man. But um, this was a great move. Our church, Mission Bible Church in Tustin, was very supportive. And I was a privileged recipient of a call from a group of elders in Gilbert, Arizona, Average Redeemer Bible Church. And the church is growing fast. And they reached out. We had a prior relationship and a friendship with them and our pastors elders deacons all affirmed the call admission and then pastor elders over here unanimously ended the call so came we're here we've barely been in arizona for a week everybody warned me about the heat we moved in the summer and uh, we're experiencing it but grateful loving the people enjoying getting to know everybody and thankful to be uh, here. So that's kind of the big life update.
1: I'm continuing to pray for you, as you as you know. It is hot there. It's hot here, too. It, we're getting about over 100, so I, I sympathize for you. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, man. Hey, can you uh, tell us about your, your, your book that's going to release when this releases? Uh, God, Greed, the, uh, and the Prosperity Gospel. How Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies. Why did you write it, and how do you hope it'll be received?
2: Yeah, I wrote the book because I was asked to. I wrote the book also because I'm passionate about helping people on the topic and understand the gospel and all the subtopics that go along with it, from healing to suffering and the sovereignty of God to money, wealth, it's used, reaching people who are caught up in these movements. All of those things are near and dear to my heart, and I know the heart of other pastors as well. So I wrote the book to try to be useful and bring some value to the discussion. Many other faithful men and women have written on the topic, talked about the topic. They have been standing for the gospel much longer than I've even been saved. So I am thankful for that. This was just my opportunity to try and contribute, and thankful for that. And then I hope that the goal of the project is, first and foremost, God receiving glory. Second, I would say, just off the top of my head, people being saved. I want people to come into contact with the truth and then turn to Christ and have uh, many people be one to Him. So that's a huge motivation of mine as well. And then a third one would be for the church, the already saved, to be equipped on the topic. I've already heard from some that they didn't realize it was a big issue. I've heard from other people that are overseas on the mission field saying this is the number one issue. And so regardless of our station or position in the church world, I'm hoping that we all are better equipped. Edified and encouraged. Well, hey, you know, uh, you you were so gracious and kind to give me
1: uh, a copy of it out at at Shepherds in person, Uh, and I was uh, I I read it pretty quickly, and oh man, I've just been thinking about it even ever since, and it's just such a helpful, readable uh, book that um, you know that really that really tells your the story of of what you how you grew up and what you went through, and and um, it's man, I have to be honest with you as as your buddy it was heartbreaking to read some of that stuff that, you know, even though you had money, can't have lots of money, you know, you, you didn't have the have the truth. And that, that was hard for me to, hard for your friend to, to read about. So I was pretty sad.
2: Yeah, that's a big reality in the prosperity gospel, at least in my experience. Maybe there's other people who are in it today different, but I would say underneath it all, you are a little bit empty and those things don't satisfy ultimately. And then I would say as well, when you get saved and you come to a full understanding of the gospel and the truth and what you've been doing and how you've been Ministering that a moment of despair that is full of shame, guilt, emptiness, heartbreak, depression. Now God rays pours out, and certainly He is faithful and has been to me and many others. But you're absolutely right. It is a heartbreaking reality. And underneath all the glit and the glamour of it, there is some serious serious
1: for those who are familiar with the term uh prosperity gospel, what exactly is that? How would how would you define it? The
2: prosperity gospel in the simplest way would be to say it is the belief that the gospel of Jesus Christ can make you happy healthy and wealthy. If you believe in Jesus, he will guarantee your healing. He'll give you that job promotion. He'll make your life better. The prosperity gospel, some have described it as gospel plus where, you know, sure, Jesus died, saved your sins, You can get to heaven. That's all great. But it's the real additions that come along to your life when you have Jesus that are the selling point that is health wealth and happiness yeah um, I, I I tweeted
1: I don't know if you saw this we use uh, the prosperity gospel uses the same terms that a biblically Orthodox person would but but changes those terms to, to mean something different kind of like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and that that's that's heartbreaking to me so
2: yeah there is a lot of terminology that is very <laughs> closely linked to the truth and that's where it's deceptive right it The devil doesn't come to deceive us with obvious tricks. They're going to be subtle. And the Bible repeatedly talks about that. I'm thinking already of Second Peter chapter 2, where Peter, in those first three verses, explains that there'll be false teachers who secretly introduce destructive heresy. It's not going to be obvious. So they use our terms that we use in, in true Christianity, and they twist them and deceive people. So is the prosperity
1: gospel something new? Where, where exactly does this idea come from?
2: Yeah, no, it's not new. It reaches all the way back in its uh, most deceptive form as a subterfuge of God's word to Genesis 3, when, remember, the serpent comes and tells Eve, you surely shall not die. And basically, yeah, what God said, it's not really true. And he begins to twist and undermine God's word. That, I would say, is the root of all deception. So that includes the prosperity gospel. But in the modern form that we're seeing, you have... Throughout history, uh, these examples of people using the gospel, twisting the gospel or God's word or religion for gain. And I think of, you know, the Reformation sparked by indulgences being sold and, you know, Johann Tetzel and others who were out there like the Pope's hitman filling his coffers and lying to people for monetary gain. All the way to, uh, you know, Oral Roberts and others in the 19. 19- 50s who uh, pushed this idea through their faith-healing crusades and other ministry avenues on radio and television, telling people that Jesus could give them all their dreams and make them come true. And you have this wave of faith-healers and prosperity preachers. And I would say, aside from all the long history from Scripture through the Reformation, if we were just to look at the last 75 years to 100 years, we see media being used by televangelists, by prosperity preachers as the number one way for them to reach the masses. And so imagine you and I were just local pastors preaching to our people, and this big, famous evangelist comes into town. His word, unfortunately, was going to be more influential than ours in the minds of a lot of people, because they listen to him on the radio, they watch him on TV. And that's what started happening with the age of media and technology and the explosion of it all. So Really, I would say what put the prosperity gospel on the global map and made it so deadly internationally is the advance of media and men like Oral Roberts doing ministry from what is, I believe, like in the 1940s and 50s, all the way to his death in the 2000s. I think he passed away in 2009. I'm just off the top of my head. I could be off by a year or two. But that's a long time to be influencing the landscape of evangelicalism. My uncle was mentored by him. Oral Roberts laid hands on me. You have Kenneth Hagan, You have Kenneth Copeland, who's still alive at 82 or 83, claiming to be a billionaire. These men have had Three, four, five-year, decade ministries, and they propagate the prosperity gospel for their own gain. Yeah, that's uh, the
1: next question that we're. I'm going to ask. will kind of touch on on what we need to do about this. Uh, what what should we? How should we warn people about the prosperity gospel?
2: Well, directly. First of all, we should be talking to people and dialoguing with them uh, in our interpersonal relationship. If they're involved in it or they're confused about it, uh, just like we recommend a great restaurant. If somebody finds the book to be helpful. They should tell a friend and say, hey, I read this book. You should read it. This is a big issue. Um, That preacher that you like is a prosperity preacher. Consider these things. And then I would say in our churches, pastors should be vocal about it. We should be reading on it. We should be potentially for some churches doing a small group curriculum or a Bible study on it to understand what God says about suffering, money, giving, generosity, healing. It's all of those topics that people seem to be very confused on today. And I would credit that, though it's not a good thing. Credit that to prosperity preachers. They've confused the landscape of important Christian doctrine that we must be teaching and preaching. So worn from pulpit and worn in the pews would be uh, kind of a pithy way to say it. Yeah, that's a
1: that's a really uh, that's a good word. You know, we're we're both convinced uh, of expository of the need for expository preaching. So we would just commend that to our to our listeners as well. If you don't know what that is, David at ServantsOfGrace.org is my email. Uh, you can you can email me and, and I'll help you find some good resources. So I would just uh, say that. You emphasize the importance of understanding God's sovereignty. What does it mean for God to be sovereign? And how is this at odds with the prosperity gospel?
2: Yeah, sovereignty would mean to rule over with supreme authority. So God's sovereignty means that he is in authority. He is over all the earth. Uh, I, I quote a man who many have quoted R.C. Sproul and talking about there being no maverick molecules uh, in God's universe. Not even a molecule is outside of his control, his providence. And so we too fall under that. So when we are going through hard times or when we're suffering in trials, etc., um, we can rely on the fact that God is in control. Romans 8, 28 then becomes very applicable, that God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean that it's always for our good in the way that we define good. It means that it's for his ultimate good, which means uh, like Johnny Erickson taught her. Does she want? To to be a quadriplegic? No. Is it a good thing that she's a quadriplegic? No. But can God turn what is a very challenging situation of suffering into good or use it for good purposes? Absolutely. That is what it means to see a sovereign God working in action um, through what appear to be dire circumstances. Um Also, you think of God's sovereignty if he's the supreme ruler over all things. That means he knows all things. That means that his ways and thought are above our ways and thought. So as a human being, God does not submit to me. I submit to God. As a human being, God does not answer to me. I don't command him. I answer to God. He commands me. He's the owner and the originator of my life. Therefore, as if I'm a Christian and I follow Christ, his son, and I trust the Father, I follow. And I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit to that end. So, if we're going to say that God is sovereign, that would mean he's the supreme ruler. The prosperity gospel, on the other hand, would say more along the lines of, well, yeah, God's sovereign. I get that because the Bible says so in a few places. But guess what? You're actually sovereign and God has sovereignly made you sovereign. <laughs> they would say you can control God. You can unlock his blessings. You can make him do the things you want him to do and that apparently he's promised to do if you give a big enough offering, if you have enough faith, if you do this and do that and so in a in in an odd way it becomes a, a bit of a salvation or even um, God's blessing by working but I, I would even link it to salvation. It's a works-based idea. That's the prosperity gospel. That's
1: uh, really helpful. Uh, I've been a, I've been a Christian since I was five, so I've, I've I've seen that, but I've also seen many Christians think, well, um, if I just do this for God, um, you know, he'll be happy with me, and that's another form of the prosperity gospel. If, right. if, if I do something for God, uh, I'll somehow uh, God will bless me and, and help me to be uh, happy and, and wealthy and, and comfortable, and, and that's just not in the Bible. So
2: no, nope, not at all. And grace would mean that we've received God's unmerited favor. He's been good to us. He's poured His love and mercy and grace upon us. I don't I don't earn his favor. I don't earn my salvation. It's a gift. And so th- that does mean that I want to obey him. It means I respond to his love by loving him. But I love because he first loved. And I'm accepted and loved, and he's gracious to me, not because of anything I've done, but because of the merit of Christ. That's the true gospel. So uh, anything else is a counterfeit. Amen. Your Uncle Benny Hinn is, a, as we know, a
1: famous tell evangelist, and your father was also a pastor. Can
2: you tell us a little bit about your life growing up with them? Yeah, I don't. maybe you're too young for this still, or we are, but I remember watching a show growing up called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Yeah, I remember that. Okay, it, it was that. Uh, the nicest hotels in the world, the luxury cars, uh, the shopping sprees, life on Rodeo Drive, basically. And underneath it all, I had questions, but it was living a celebrity lifestyle with the who's who always around, and we were in a bubble. We had security, we lived in mansions and million-dollar houses, multiple houses in Gated communities and were insulated from the outside, though appearing to be these gracious and kind and personable faith healers who were uh, bestowing our anointing and our gifts on
1: others. Yeah, well, I can't imagine that. I, I grew up in, a, in an area. I think you know where this is in Seattle, Bellevue, and so yeah, I grew up there. So so we had we had we had it pretty good, uh, but but nothing like that. Um, you know, we, we had a view of of the of the water and Mount Rainier, of Lake Sammamish and Mount. Rainier and I lived in a golfing community and and I never wanted for anything but that's that's a whole nother level so
2: yeah we had so you you had a view of some water and and a mountain and we had a view of the ocean and uh, yeah you might have had a decent house and we had like indoor hot tubs and steam rooms and masseuse specialists coming in to to massage us and weird stuff and yeah I didn't have that (laughs) Ferraris and Maseratis and Bentleys and Benzes and Hummers and um, so life life was a little different for me than yours in Bellevue but um, Bellevue is a beautiful place, so I'm glad you got the experience with that, too. Thanks. You you grew up believing
1: that uh, you could control God to get what you wanted, that, that if you gave God money, He would give you money, or that if you had enough faith, you could be healed from illness or avoid getting sick entirely. When did you begin to doubt these
2: ideas? When things did not happen the way that we had guaranteed, everything works until it doesn't. <laughs> I know that sounds oversimplified, but it's true. Everything works in my mind until it doesn't. And all of a sudden, prophecies weren't coming true, uh, Money was changing hands in interesting ways. We were saying things like Jesus is going to appear physically at services. We would say things like you're going to get healed or you're going to have a baby or your loved one is going to be raised from the dead. I mean, big promises that didn't come true. And so in the back of my mind, I started to question these things, but was always taught don't touch the Lord's anointed. Never, ever question a man of God. And one of the big moments for me was a gal in my high school got cancer. Beautiful blonde gal, uh, long hair was popular her life was going great and she got cancer and began to lose her hair she had to wear a wig and I remember wondering if like why my dad we just couldn't go heal her if we're gifted and we have this anointing and we're so prevalent around the world let's just go heal her and wouldn't do it and the explanation wasn't good enough because it made no sense and I began to wonder well if we have this amazing gift let's use it and then the people who doubt will believe just like Jesus because the idea for us was that Baptists and Lutherans and Reformed people and everyone else were part of dead churches who would not be healed because they couldn't uh, access God's favor because they didn't believe and have enough faith. So I'm thinking, well, let's go make them believe just like Jesus. Go do something amazing and they will see that you are anointed. Well, we didn't. And that was another big bomb that uh, kind of blew up my belief system and what I thought I was a part of. Conversely, or furthermore, uh, later on in college and early in uh, what was ministry for me in that world, I began to meet people who had questioned the theology, questioned the practices, and began to help me along to, to ask deeper questions.
1: Yeah, how, how did that, what did that process look like for you to, to question the teaching, you know, and your uncle and your uh, your father, that, that can of been easy, so. No,
2: it, it wasn't. I had, I would say, three people. I'll turn it into a bit of a sermon with three points, but, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the coach, the girl, and the pastor um, would be the way I would describe it. I had a coach in college that uh, decided, and walked with me and it was Dallas Baptist University was where I was. I was playing baseball for coach Dan Heefner, and he poured into my life and it put cracks in the dam of my belief system big time. And he would talk about different things like the sovereignty of God. And I used to be confused thinking, well, what on earth is he talking about? How do I get on the good side of sovereignty and get God to do what I want him to do? And he used to tell us that God is in control. And I thought, well, I am. And then the girl came along after I graduated from DBU. I met my now wife, Christine, and she was a questioner. Question asker, and she was humble and and still teachable, and she had legitimate questions, but also wanted to learn and thought, well, I don't know much, so I'll follow. And things didn't work out for her because my family wanted her to speak in tongues and do this and do that and do this and do that, and it just was not working. And so we started wondering, well, maybe there's things that the Bible teaches that are different than what we're teaching. And sure enough, there were, and that caused a huge fracture in family relationship, and then leading us to end up at a church plant in Southern California with a pastor who took me under his wing and essentially was attractional kind of mega church seeker driven approach to ministry but the lord took hold of his heart my heart our church and sovereignly began to change the convictions of our church and our leaders and over time uh I preached a sermon and I had to study for the sermon and I got given a John MacArthur commentary and it blew apart my life and my theology on healing and so preaching that sermon was a was my conversion moment where all the questions seemed to come to a head, and God used people in my life to ask questions and to point me to the truth. Ultimately, using His Word to crack every out of um of my system and and crumble it. So that's kind of how it all happened. Mm, wow! Praise God for His grace. Well, we've been
1: talking about you know your your lifestyle when you were involved in the prosperity gospel,
2: and you told us a little bit about it.
1: When did you first realize that your lifestyle was supported by people who didn't live anything like you did?
2: I I was on a trip to India and with my uncle and my dad, we flew on a Gulfstream there. We stayed in the nicest hotel. We were in Mumbai. There were literally millions of people at the services. They had acres and acres of outdoor space that we had uh, available. There were massive TV screens throughout. This stuff is on YouTube. You can see it. And the people looked like ants. They were scattered everywhere. And I went down to a healing tent out of the area off the side where a lot of the sick people were. And my dad let me go there one night with him to look around. And, and he was one of the people who picked out certain sick people and prayed for them And um, I remember seeing utter devastation and uh, children and adults laying in the mud, people crippled people sick, people crying, people desperate, literally on the verge of death and I remember looking back up and this image is seared in my mind I've talked about it before, looking up at the stage and seeing my uncle in his white suit and the contrast of the dirt and the people and the pain and then looking up at you know a, a man on a stage behind three metal barricades where people couldn't even get to, being the anointed healer, but people weren't being healed. And that was difficult. As much as I had believed and drank the Kool-Aid and wanted to believe that we were doing the right thing, I began to question seriously, internally, of course, because I didn't want to be rejected by my family, if what we were doing was, in fact, all the way true. And I came to find that really none of it was. Wow, wow. Meeting your wife, Christine, seems to have changed the direction your life
1: took, for sure. Um, I know that's true for me too. When I met my wife Sarah, she changed my life. Um, you also write that you grew up thinking that ministry was a higher priority than marriage. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So in our world, ministry was the highest priority, and and it is. I think it is a very high priority still today, and it should be for all of us. We love the Lord, we love His church, and our life is committed to serving Him. That's still true. Gospel proclamation is still vital. I think you and I would agree with that. We Amen. Have high priority on it, and yes, families do sacrifice for the good of of the church and the good of the gospel. Just look at Adoniram Judson and Ann Judson and the many other missionaries who have gone. We all sacrifice, we ought to, all sacrifice for the gospel. So with that agreed upon, um, I will say that we are not to build empires, seek out riches, and pursue our own desires at the expense of our family. We don't ditch the wife and ditch the kids to go save the world, but never disciple at home. And the family, or ultimately I think the marriage, outside of our own devotion to Christ, That is should be assumed for the Christian, if we're going to wear the label follower of Christ, Um, assuming your devotion and your first ministry is to Christ as an individual, our first ministry outside of that is to our marriage, to the wife. We want to pour into our wife. If the marriage isn't sound and solid, everything else is going to be falling apart that pours out of that. And so in our world, though, everything took a backseat to ministry and everybody had to give up what they wanted. And marriage was put on the back burner. It didn't matter what the emotions were, what the needs were. Ministry was first because ministry paid the bills and ministry made us rich. So that was the premium. And when I met my wife, there was a dear brother who looked at me one time and said, you need to stop trying to be your dad's hero and your church's hero and you need to be your wife's hero. She's your first ministry. And he was explaining to me that outside of devoting myself to Christ, nothing else matters except pouring into that woman and making a disciple, uh, walking with her as a co-heir of grace and equal in Christ. All of those things were new to me. I went, what in the world? And it made sense. And so um, just like everybody else, no marriage is perfect. We go through challenges. Um, everybody experiences conflict. We experience conflict. We experience moments of challenge and despair. But our focus is always to make Christ the center and look to him and then support one another and love one another as he's commanded. So yeah, my whole outlook on marriage and ministry changed when I got saved. Mm. Amen, brother. What did, you know, for those
1: wondering what your uh, relationship it looks like with your family, what would you say to them? They, they might wonder, what what does that look like? today?
2: Yeah, it's a mixture of victories and challenges. I've got some family members that uh, have moved away from the prosperity gospel a little bit because of our our talks, but they still dabble in some of the false teachings and false ideas that the prosperity gospel propagates. Um, They still guarantee people healing and they still say some weird things that aren't in the Bible. So that's just part of life. I've got some other family members that are really encouraging. They call me and uh, tell me that they're praying for me and they're they're proud of our family and um, they're very supportive. And then some other family members that are very angry, and they don't want to talk, and they don't want to have relationship, and they view it very personal, as though my stand against the prosperity gospel and for the true gospel is about them as a person, and that I hate them or um, I'm attacking them. And the idea that I hate my family is foreign. I do not at all. I reject the theology and the ideas, and I hate the theology and the ideas. But I don't. I reject or hate the people. I love my family. I want to see all of us come to a place of openness and repentance. And obviously for my uncle, that's going to mean more of a public statement. It's going to mean more than just being sorry because he said a few things that were wrong. It's going to mean a deep and and accountable process of repentance and of restoration. But uh, right now, things don't look to be going that direction. But as long as we're all still breathing, there's still hope and there's still grace, isn't there? Mm.
1: Amen, brother. Amen. Well, Kosti, there's a lot that we could talk about and dive into about this topic uh, for our listeners, do do you have any uh, takeaways that you want them to take away as they they read your book?
2: Yeah, if you're not in a a solid Bible teaching church, get in one. And there's no perfect church, so don't expect that. So get in one and get rooted and serve and give and love and cry and sing and stay rooted and know that Christ is building his church. So we want to be a part of that. I want people to be in good churches, great churches that are faithful and grow with them. So do that and then reach your friends and family for the gospel gospel. Every chance you can get, um, love them, keep the door open, build a bridge, and do everything you can. Be praying that the Lord would give you opportunity to share the truth with others. Amen, brother. Where can people find out more about your ministry work? Um, I'm on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Both are Hin. so you can find me on social media there. And then at ForTheGospel.org, ForTheGospel.org. I write there. Information about the book is there, and I'm sure in the future I'll add some things to it, maybe more videos or different opportunities to uh, edify people with teaching, but overall active on social media. Well, Kasi, I'm truly thankful f- for not only this book, which is
1: outstanding. It is it is very well written. I'm very proud of you, my friend. Um, Thank you, man.
2: I'm proud yeah. of you. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, buddy.
1: Uh, I really appreciate your, our friendship and, and the work the Lord's doing uh, in and through you. So God bless you, buddy. God bless you. Thanks, buddy.
0: for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Servants of Grace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.